Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists, people of the regenerative movement or who are committed and showcase planetary leadership. My name is Julian Guderlei, and in today's episode, I'm hosting an interview with Dr. Thomas Daffern. Dr. Thomas Daffern is a philosopher, historian, peace studies expert, and religious studies spe specialist. He was awarded a PhD from the University of London for a thesis which explores the history of the search for peace and which proposes a new field of historiography, transpersonal history. He's written over 50 books and is a published poet, historian, philosopher, religious studies expert, and specialist in interfaith peacemaking. He's European coordinator for the World Intellectual Forum and has been active in calling for a proper investigation of the etiology of the current coronavirus pandemic. Among his publications are the following um, that we'll discuss. And with these words, welcome to the show, Thomas. Right, well, thank you, Julian, nice to meet you. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that we'll have a lot to um, exchange. Yeah, and yeah. unpack, you know, it's, it's unique times on the, on the planet. It is uh, May, 2020. Um, you know, the, the conversation around global peace, I think, is or planetary peace is is a very important one especially when we look into what kind of leadership do we actually have for this planet what kind of vision do we have for this planet and so i'm, I'm super curious to learn about what you you've been up to what you're working on uh, recent books you've been putting out there so where to begin thomas um maybe i'll let you maybe i'll let you choose like set a context that we can understand the depth of work you've been going through in, in just the next hour or so we have together sure um well, it's hard to know where to begin. Um, I've been active in one form or another in peace work since I would say even the 1960s when I was a little boy. My parents used to be active in the anti-nuclear disarmament movement in London and indeed even in Canada. I was born in Montreal mm -hmm. and they, they were that generation that lived through the war, World War II. They met in the Blitz in London. And they brought our family up to really like act, be active for peace. You know, it was just not, it was not seen as eccentric. It was, it was our human duty actually. And um, so instead of getting normal comics, you know, I used to read uh, magazines from UNESCO and things. Um, we used to come to France for holidays. We, we ended up living in Brighton as a family. We moved from Canada to Sussex in Brighton. And um, which has a nice cosmopolitan feel and quite an active peace movement. My mother ran the peace movement for Brighton, the anti-nuclear weapons mm -hmm. movement. Interesting. I went to study philosophy at university and I, I, <clears throat> I wanted to know the meaning of life. You know, I, I discovered philosophy and the whole ancient Greek classical tradition of philosophy that inspired my imagination to ask bigger, bigger questions. I didn't want to be, you know, like, someone with a profession, a trade, a skill. I wanted to ask the deeper questions of meaning. And so by the age of, well, you know, when I was a young man, I was reading Spinoza and um, studying Plato and, and trying to discover what, you know, what life's all about. And um, so I went off, studied philosophy and got, I got very interested in what, what is called comparative global philosophy. I decided pretty early on that I wasn't interested in studying one particular lineage of thought. I discovered Buddhism in the 70s. I got very deeply into meditation, studied yoga, 
studied ancient wisdom traditions like the Druid tradition. I went to Canada and I studied intensely for four years, comparative spirituality. I read the Bible, the Quran, all the sacred scriptures of mankind, working out a kind of, you know, why are we here type, type thing. And then in the 80s, I, I looked up from my books, I had an absolute blissed out experience reading Aristotle and, you know, the Quran and studying Islamic philosophy. Wow, what a journey. And yeah, I mean, the, the commentaries, I mean, like, you know, Maimonides, the greatest Jewish philosopher, he used Aristotle to interpret the Bible. Ibn Rush, the greatest Islamic philosopher, he used Aristotle to study the Quran. And they came up with the same things. They ended up talking about what is the nature of prophetic intelligence. You know, you ask, well, how can we envision the future? So, so we have to cultivate what's called prophetic intelligence and not just, you know, through texts, but through lived experience. I have a friend who's a judge in Israel called Shlomo Soham, who's written a book about future intelligence. He's part of the World Intellectual Forum that I'm on. And he, he was asked by the Knesset to look at um, all the legislation that they pass. How will this look like seven generations from now? Look at it from a big, big future perspective. Is it going to stand up, you know? And so he, he developed this idea of future intelligence, which exactly I've done the same through my studies of, of you know, the classics. Anyway, I looked up from my books to discover the world was in chaos. There was wars in the Middle East. The Cold War was raging over Germany and cruise missiles and nuclear war. So I came back to London and I set up a group of philosophers and historians active for peace. The idea was, why can't we come together, whatever our ideology, whether we're, you know, communist, anti-communist, Christian, Buddhist, whatever, why can't we just come together and, and take the conflict to a higher level of discourse? So I ran meetings in London in the 80s, and I met lots of intellectuals and academics, and I discovered this thing called peace studies. I, I'd worked, I, I then did a degree at the University of London. I did contemporary history. I wanted to study the, the origin of, you know, the threat of nuclear omnicide. A philosopher friend of mine, John Somerville, called this, the, the, the situation we're facing as a planet is, is omnicide. It's the death of everything. And um, somehow, we're, I, I see the work I do as a medical, effectively a medical doctor working on planetary medicine. How can we get these warring parts of the body politic of the whole planet to, which are different ethnicities, different religions, different nations, to collaborate together and come up with a bigger picture, which is peace-oriented? So that's what I've been doing. I then worked for the University of London. I had a job to set up a peace studies institute. It was an amazing, you know, series of coincidences, which gave me a base in Bloomsbury at the heart of London for several years. And then I travel around the world interviewing professors, having one-to-one -one meetings, recording them and, and asking. I, that's when I went to California, by the way. I went to San Francisco. I went to Berkeley at mm -hmm. the university and stuff. Talking to academics about what is peace? How can we study for it? You know? How can we find it through, through questioning where it is? Yeah. 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 And then I, I also went to Russia. I went to Moscow a couple of times and... I was involved with, and still am, a thing called the World Congress of Philosophy, which is the body that, that you know, the world's leading philosophers all kind of belong to and meet every five years. 
I've been to many of those meetings and I was elected coordinator of the kind of international body of philosophers working on peace issues. And so that's that's been my kind of, um, it's my service really, yeah, yeah. my planetary service. And and that's well, why I've written all the books I've done. And, yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you in that context then, uh, Thomas, because so this is, um, you know, as, as, as the listeners know, and as, as you know, this is such a fitting uh, synchronicity because really I've been guided over the last three years to ask the question of like, what is your earth vision in context of seven generations? Really ah. take into account <laughs> the longer generational arc, right? Like Quite. Beyond yeah. our individual ego, beyond our individual existence uh, or, or even like a family legacy, more so as a, um, a human family legacy or a planetary yeah. legacy. And so like, what do you reckon? What does the world need most right now in these times of, you know, pandemic, lockdown, uh, separation still, I would, I would say, mm. to, to make a step towards that piece because you've been studying from, from such a vast um, mm. uh, amount of angles. Okay, so if I had, if I was given one little um, file of magic dust, I could sprinkle on the world, one yeah, principle nice. <laughs> that could transform the planet, it would be the energy of truth. In Sanskrit, it's called satya, the energy of truth. You see, my analysis, and, and this fits with the findings of all the great conflict researchers and people like John Burton, the ac academic experts, it's communication breakdown that leads to conflict at a personal level in the family and relationships or at a national level between different perspectives and parties or internationally. Communication breakdown is always about my truth is, is, is X, your truth is Y, so I'm going to fight you. And it's about, <clears throat> so what we need to do is we need a new, a new logic system to have different truths simultaneously coexisting within the context of a bigger truth. Um, and so, but the very first thing, the first rule of the game of planetary peacemaking is that people actually have to tell the truth. You know, in, and so I've actually, in, that's the theoretical stuff in the practical world. I'm trying to get a bill passed in Parliament in the UK and also in other uh, de democracies around the world mm -hmm. where politicians are forced by law to tell the truth. In other words, they're not allowed to lie about anything that comes before them in their official matters. And just that one thing, if I could sprinkle that magic fairy dust of truth telling into Congress and Parliament and so on, that, that, is the only way we'll be able to get peace on this planet. Because as long as people are lying and getting away with it, as so many politicians now do, we live in an opaque world of, of you know, uh, fairy stories. People don't know who to trust. And that's, that's been really true over this coronavirus outbreak. I've watched it. Um, you know, nobody really knows who to trust. Should we have vaccinations? Should we not? You know, who are the medical experts we can trust? Should we trust Fauci? Should we trust Trump? Et cetera, et cetera. It's, we're in this sort of epistemological void. We're in the times of the void where, where it is really hard to understand um, in the outside world where, you know, it suggests to go inward even more. But, but maybe let me ask you then this follow-up question, which is, you know, actually on my list of questions, which is so, so fitting. What does right. it require for you to trust? Um, both media sources, but even just another person in, in you know, in, in a very um, kind of like a, a normal human interaction. 
Well, I think this, this, this mutual commitment to truth has got to be at the heart of it. Um, and one of the most important things that I like to hear from someone is, is if you're having a discussion and you, know, you ask a question, they, they, if they're able to say, I don't know, then they're on, to, on the path to truth. The, the problem I have with people I don't really trust are people that always have the answer to everything. They're so um, arrogant and think that their solution, their ideology, their framework is the only truth. Um, whereas I think what, this is why I'm a philosopher. I believe in Descartes, the principle of doubt. And I, I follow Socrates who, who, who developed his whole strategy of, of asking questions around not knowing. You know, he didn't know. He doesn't know what justice is. He doesn't know what the good is. So let's have a conversation about it. And the minute you start having a conversation about it, then you get peace because, you know, we can share what we think and everybody listens in turn, which was the idea of the platonic dialogues. What I'm trying to do for the planet is to recapture that lost art of conversation. Now that requires listening. You know, you're very kindly listening to me. You have a good listening skills. It's incredible. That is almost like a dying art nowadays. People are shouting what they believe, even on social media and stuff. And mm, yeah, if you say something that is outside somebody's paradigm, they defriend you. You know, it's like we, we no longer can listen to each other. And that, that is a challenge if we're going to be peacemaking. I love um, what you're bringing to attention and to awareness because really this like, truth factor um it's also like what's what's come abandoned in our internet right like if you think back the internet was like a free place at the very beginning um and at, at the moment i mean data is owned by different companies by different countries we know that all forms of intelligence are listening to our data with the promise of the internet of things where everything talks to each other right i guess i guess what i'm trying to say is that even the infrastructure we're in the internet itself might have to collapse and rebirth in a new way for us to really live that form of um, visibility, trust and truth. Um, you know. Well, I've, I've actually written a novel, <laughs> which I'm about to publish. I've been sitting on it for a while. I've decided now's the time to publish it. And in the novel, which is a history of the future, it predicts the next thousands of years. What happens to the internet in the future in the novel is scientists invent a kind of a coil that you can put around the wires where the, where the cables come across the Atlantic and you know, bring all the traffic, say these signals that we're exchanging now, that's coming through a set of cables somewhere in the Atlantic probably. They stick, a, they stick a coil around it, which can filter out lies and, and fake stuff and spam, you know, and only truth can get through. So what, what philosophers do at about a couple of hundred years from now is they, they, they find a way to marry up um, cyber technology with, with veracity so that, you know, I mean, there's no point <clears throat> having um, vast amounts of data. We're, we're drowning the sea of information and yet few people are actually telling the truth. Um, so that changes. That's the shift that comes in my novel about a couple of hundred years. And so much more information that we're even able to process, right? Well, quite. That's um, the, the, the challenge putting it philosophically is how we shift from information to wisdom. There's a synthesis, an alchemy that has to happen when we mm -hmm. 
we take information from many sources and then we kind of the higher mind goes to work on it the the higher intellect what aristotle called the the nous that, that yeah. has to then yeah absolutely you know, and, and many people now call it the higher self or or source or simply like listening right simply listening is really the, the tool or the, the technique that gets us there in yeah. that co context the question would be like what does it take for humanity to actually learn from its past to 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 take information into wisdom okay so that's a good question um so that's why that's why i wanted to study history it was to answer that question and i i did my history degree at london university and i'm in love with history i love the historical methodology i've learned how to decipher sources uh, originally i wanted to be an archaeologist if i was 12 and you asked me what do you want to be it's an archaeologist because i'm i'm you know life the present is a layering of all the times past and there was a famous philosopher called Croce in Italian um, who said that all um, that all history is contemporary history. So each generation relives all the kind of insights and ideas of the past. Um, so the question then is, how can we synthesize the lessons of history into meaning for our present? That's really, really, you know, a, a deep question. It's to answer that, that I came up with my concept of transpersonal history when I was doing my PhD. It, I don't know if you've studied history at all, but there are like different mm -hmm. fields of history. You can do feminist history, you study the history of the women's movement. You can do military history, you study the history of wars. Diplomatic history, which I studied at the LSE, you look at treaties, you know, and diplomatic stuff. And that's all very interesting because you get to read all the secret correspondence and things. Nowadays, you'd want to look to WikiLeaks and see the secret diplomacy that's going on under the under the cover. So there's all that, and that's fine. But then there's intellectual history, which is what really interests me, the history of ideas. And within that, I'm particularly interested in the history of people's spiritual evolution, our enlightenment moments, our insight moments. And that's what I call transpersonal history. So it's taking the ideas of Ken Wilber, who I'm sure you're familiar with, Carl Jung and Asagioli and other pioneers mm -hmm, of transpersonal yes, psychology, yes. and saying there's a transpersonal history of humanity that's not really talked about, that's not studied. You know, if you go and do history at most universities, um, you do histories of wars. I mean, even the history of peace is a, a relatively new field. That, that was my, my doctorate was in that. And within that, I'm interested in the history of spirituality that, that can break through to a more peaceful, um, yeah, enlightenment, um, um, you know, reality for us all. So that's, that's um, and that's how I think we, we will get out of the, the burning building. Buddha, Buddha used mm -hmm, to say, look, mm -hmm. you know, the world's on fire. I'm giving you a methodology to get out, which was his eightfold path. We need to update that. I've just finished a commentary on the Dhammapada, which is the greatest Buddhist scripture, I think. And um, I've tried to explain in the commentary, you know, how that needs updating for now. Um, but it can be done. You know, I, I'm an optimist. I have a positive view of the future. Um, That's beautiful. We, I always ask about optimism and what it takes for people to consistently be choosing optimism um especially when informed especially when well studied like what what does it take for you 
Well, I think I think you I think it's the only realistic solution to the problems. You know, the world is so there's such a dark uh, karma, if you want to use Buddhist terminology, that's built up with all the wars, with mm. all the racism and the genocides and the madness. Well, that all comes out of ignorance. That was Plato's answer, and it's Buddha's answer, and it's Shankara's answer. You know, the great Vedantin scholar. So, if we if we accept that there is a wisdom. Um, you know, to be found, we can we can um, we can synthesize the the ignorance, the negativity, and turn it into something positive. That's what I mean about being a planetary healer. I'm always trying to see in any broken conversation, you know, between whether it's a couple that I'm mediating, or a religious groups, or a you know nations. I'm looking for the common lines of force that actually interconnect these these apparently broken relationships um and if they're invisible it's like you know iron filings and an invisible magnet force i mean but the truth is what actually coheres the fractured uh, people who think they've got these rival identities going you know my ego versus yours whatever my identity versus yours but actually we come from a common matrix of universal consciousness, which was the insight of, you know, the great philosophers of the past. Well, it's, it's true. And we have to like, um, start from that place, you know? Um, <clears throat> yeah, that, that's very, that's very well put. So if we go around the world in this kind of sense of planetary stewardship and look at certain places or certain energetic uh, portals almost right to understanding mm. our real origin um, i think the middle east is 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 clearly a place where you know um all of the major religions have one of their most sacred place in the world um, mm. what would it take the, for, to let this mask of this belongs to me and this belongs to you based on xyz history and to let that mask fall and surrender into the present moment of coming together what what would it take in, in, a, in an intense place like that you know mm. well i think it takes um the same experience that moses had when he was staring into the burning fire the burning bush you have to have the encounter with the living noetic um, fire at the heart of existence heraclitus talked about the cosmic fire that underlies everything um is the arcade the source now more and more people, I'm actually very happy. The younger generation seem to have got there. They've already come into the world with that knowledge. Um, the older generation go down to Latin America and take ayahuasca. And, you know, they, they get that knowledge the hard way. But I think it's innate in the human being. Um, and it's, it's about a vulnerability, a, trans, a transparency to our weakness. As St. Paul said, our spiritual growth is measured not by how strong we are, but how much we surrender, how much we acknowledge our weakness. And this, this coronavirus is an incredible planetary lesson in humility mm -hmm. and weakness. We humans are, you know, frail, but also wonderful. And in our weakness is strength, as St. Paul said. Mohammed talked about it in terms of surrender, that state of grace that comes when you realize your ego <laughs> is no match for the creator of the universe, you know. And that you, the only sensible thing you can do is surrender. It's like in the battlefield of egos, trying to triumph over this or that. 
the only thing is actually like give in and say no no okay i surrender to you uh, great spirit or the right. absolute which kind of closes the circle to the question of optimism right because that means there is a healthy dose of surrendering into the universe is conspiring in my favor kind of uh, perception of reality right like if yeah. if i don't have to make the sun wake up in the morning but we're just <laughs> spinning in blackness and perfection and it's we know we seem to perceive it as days um <laughs> then i'm, I'm going to trust that and going to say yes to life right i think we have enough reason to actually do so it's a lot of fear um that is in our i don't know maybe it's our dna history even on this planet you know that like is to be overcome yeah. into the present moment and to gain consciousness and awareness um each and yeah, you moment. you put it beautifully yeah yeah now i think there is the dna we it's been a hard battle through through the kind of um all all the different planetary shocks that this this world system has had and you know our, our little we we were the tiny mammals that survived the extinction event of the dinosaurs I mean, the, the genes that you and I have in our bodies, we were the little little creatures that survived because we were tiny and, and mammal. That's how mammals became important. And then we, you know, we're the most um, capable of the mammals. So we have a duty to sustain and honor and, and you know, give thanks. Um, I'm actually doing a commentary on the Upanishads at the moment. And there's a, an amazing verse this morning. It's in the oldest of the Upanishads where self, in the beginning is darkness, nothingness, death. Out of that comes the thought of self. And then self arises and thinks um, of praise. And out of praise comes water. It's an amazing sequence of, of sort of, um, it's the creation story. It's like Genesis, but with all the bits filled in. So in this ancient Upanishadic text from about 800 BC, that sense of praise is the first thing that we're supposed to do the minute we get a self. Because you praise the stars, the moon, uh, the wind, nature, the horse, the beloved, whatever. And from that comes water, which I think is an amazing insight by these Vedic seers, because water is very humble. It always takes the lowest place. Um, it flows. The river is always going down to the to the you know humblest place. And in the Taoist scriptures of Chinese philosophy, they say the Tao is like water, and that is that is their understanding of the absolute. The absolute isn't a sort of great big explosion in the sky, a big bang. No, it's it's water. Uh, um, on that track, in going back to your question, what will it take to get to peace? In the Greek philosophical system, which loved water, by the way, the Greeks were great sailors, as you know, Thales totally. said that everything comes from water. It's the arche. I think he was right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, the Greek word for enlightenment, it's very interesting because I've written a dictionary of philosophical terms in all different languages. I've tried to go in depth into, say, Sanskrit or Hebrew or Greek or Latin or whatever, and American Indian languages to say, what are your words for God, goddess, wisdom, enlightenment? The Greek word for enlightenment is lysis, which means a liquid, um, you know, to become liquid, to resolve into um, a liquid state. And it's the root of the word analysis. Mm -hmm. When you analyze a problem, you liquefy it down to its its 
basics. And it's the root of the word psychoanalysis. It's what a good psychoanalytical process will do. It will take you back to your, your essential watery nature. And then everything becomes a solution. Every problem becomes a solution. And the word solution is when you liquefy the thing. So what I'm working for as a planet, and I love the fact that you've got the blue-green thing going there in mm -hmm. your work, because the blue is the water, right? 100%. Yeah, and so that, that blueness is the, is the lysis that we need as a planet um, to, to not take stuff so seriously, not, not fight. You know, why should Britain fight against other countries or why should you know, country. I mean, it's ridiculous that Germany and Britain used to have all these wars, you know, I mean, for God's sake, we're actually pretty much the same people, you know. Absolutely. So, I, I think the way we interact with the world around us and then form conscious agreements with the world around us also has, as a consequence, like the level of beauty we can experience, right? Like if you go into water, something that's coming, coming up through the show. Um, recently, we had an exploration of vibratory physics with Jeremy Pfeiffer on the show here and um, mm. next I'm going to have Pollack, uh, Jerry Pollack on from the Pollack lab laboratory All who right. are currently researching the fourth state of water and the, oh. uh, the, the idea that you know beyond uh, water being solid liquid or gas there's also a form of intelligence that travels in the water which has it's been a long time coming to try to, to observe and make that scientific and um, they're famous be for really discovering, yeah, they're, mm. they're famous for discovering this water bridge where between two cups, the water forms a memory of a form and flows basically defying gravity. And mm. it's mm. just a tiny step, but it's, it's showing that there might be a fourth phase of water that is to do with kind of like the electromagnetic charge. And, and you know, if, if mm. we think of peace, and that we are water beings, it's maybe also an electromagnetical charge in our own being, right? Like how we are uh, perceiving the world, receiving the world, encountering each other, uh, are maybe. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're beings made larger water that can vibrate and tune in with each other. And exactly. those vibrations can transfer at great distance. I mean, I'm interested in parapsychology and experiments to do with telepathy and stuff. And I've seen enough to know, yes, it's true. I think maybe what we're talking now about is how it works, how consciousness, if consciousness is the intelligence hidden innate in all, in all the states of matter, which are in constant transformation and evolution, then, <laughs> you know, um, things will naturally flow into each other and, and they will um, defy the so-called laws of, of physics at any one time, because, because actually that state of universal consciousness is, is a metaphysical, state to use aristotle's term um when you know when we when we humans realize this is all much more interesting than chopping each other up and doing genocides and i mean you know that's such a primitive waste of time of human life experience as buddha said life is a tremendously amazing thing it's the place you can get enlightened this is a buddha field so use it mm. beautiful this, yeah. this this is why i'd love more philosophy classes in every school <laughs> I've taught also, I should say, I taught for 10 years in the UK school system as a school teacher with kids. And I love that experience mm -hmm. because young minds are really, they're still watery enough to be supple. When people get older, get fixed, they have their particular, you know, belief systems and their 
political status and all that. Kids are much more flexible and fluid, and they they get what we're talking about here much much easier. So I'm interested in how we bring these really sophisticated kind of new discoveries at the edge of science and spirituality in a way that can be delivered in the classroom. Um, that is a, a very, very fascinating topic indeed. Uh, and another series that we've been exploring for quite a while on, on Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, this, this idea of, you know, um, a new kind of planetary education system that is s somewhat like a centralized, like a decentral, but a, but, a, but a centralized hub of information that every human on earth can log into. And then depending on where you are in the world, you can um, localize it and, and teach it locally or um, yeah, and so in that context, let me ask you another question. What would you do if you and a team of experts were to change the education system at large? Like, how would you set it up? In which kind of way to serve humanity? In which way? Okay, that's that's a good good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm working on that, and I've written books about education. And obviously, I think peace education is part of every kid's right. Um, to have training and mediation and, and listening skills. And I've worked as a mediator in schools, training kids to practice mediation skills. So I think, I think more um, of those kind of uh, topics, I think more philosophy in schools because kids are still flexible enough to realize the wonder of existence. Aristotle said all of philosophy begins with wonder. If you break wonder out of the education system and you say, no, it's all about receiving this packet of knowledge. We're, we're working with a billiard ball model of knowledge, whereas for the greening of education, I once ran a, um, a workshop called the Greening of Education up in Snowdonia in Wales, where I was living. And um, I, I had this kind of realization at the conference that we need to move forward into a wave theory of knowledge. So instead of a, a, you know, a quantum theory of knowledge where we deliver little packets of information and people gobble them up and regurgitate them. No, knowledge, the whole of knowledge is like a sea. And every child, every human is a swimmer in that sea. And we might want to gravitate towards, well, I'm going to look at architecture today, or I'm going to look at physics, or I'm going to master these mathematical equations, or I'm going to learn ancient Greek and read Plato and the original. That's all, it's all wave forms. And there's a symmetry between the different fields of knowledge, which carry across. So if, you know, if you do, if you're good at music, if you learn to play an instrument and you understand how music works, that actually translates into mathematics. You can then see maths as a kind of frozen music, which then might overspill into art. You might be able to paint that. I mean, Leonardo da Vinci was also a musician. He used to organize concerts and stuff. I like live close to where he's Renaissance married. Renaissance human, yeah. Well, that's right. That, so that would be my vision of education. We, we, I want to produce a whole bunch of... I mean, every kid has the potential to be a Leonardo. And, and I think we dumb them down first by saying knowledge is split up into these separate subjects. You know, there's languages, there's history, there's geography, there's maths. No, there's one thing. It's called enlightenment, and we approach it through the systematic trails of intuition and, and thought processes that um, are a delight and a wonder to explore. So how it would work, okay, so I've thought about this actually, it's funny you asked it, 
I think the first thing I would do if I was planetary minister of education is I would change the architecture of all schools. At the moment, we have these square buildings with classrooms where you go and you study your separate subjects. So you have the maths department, you have the physics department, the English department, so on. So I would do it on, on your model of the hub. I'd have a circular building. In the middle is like a great hall circular where every kid has a little pod station with their computer and they can access all knowledge. They have their little, and it's open plan like an office building. Running off from the central circular conference thing are the corridors of the different knowledge fields where the kids can then go and explore the sciences or literature or the arts or religious studies or sport or whatever. And it would be up to them. I think we need a curriculum that they self-manage. They would, you know, some kids would graduate more to the, to the art department. They'd spend their time in there. Others would go down to the science lab or the maths or whatever. It would be understood that they can go freely and the, the teachers will be available in their fields of speciality all the time, like 24 seven. And whoever comes in, well, they'll get special individual attention. So learning becomes more of a independent study process fueled by a, a you know, um, a core sense of wonder um, and, and a realization that all knowledge is interconnected. And I think it could work. I, I'm, I'd love to see such a school built as a trial know um, and get some architects working on it and there are i've discovered thank you so much for that so that i i love these visions that are in, in people's <laughs> mind's eye like it's almost like there is you know imagination if we take that word and we take it apart um into the nation of images right like imagination okay. it's like, like that, it. that 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 plane or dimension of images is actually accessible to all of us and we kind of pick yeah. images out of that Cool and often, you know, we're all seeing similar dreams or versions of the earth. We're just wondering why it's not being built and, and acted. And I think mm. to degrees and parts it is, and to degrees and parts it's ourselves who have to step forward to embody and realize this kind of um, form of peace and, um, you know, human yeah. cooperation with, with nature. So, so <clears throat> let me just try and answer one of the implicit questions in that, which is why it's not happening. Um, so Go ahead, yeah. I'm, I'm doing a commentary on Das Kapital as a philosopher because um, Marx's theory was that it's not happening because the capitalists with all the money, the Bill Gates, the rest of them, control the system so that only some of the really good things come through which they own and they patent. So we, there is a problem. However, what I've discovered in my commentary on Das Kapital is there's a huge lacuna. If, if Marx was one of my students and I was doing marking his degree work, I'd, I'd kind of borderline fail him because what he did in his study of capital is he never once mentioned the military industrial complex and its role in, in siphoning capital to its own ends. You see, money is the symbol of our collective energy. That was the point he was making and therefore should belong to all of us. What he didn't realize is that actually the way that power operates and controls capital is through, through generating and causing a continual succession of wars for which it can then justify creaming off the next trillion dollars for the next super killing machines. 
This has been going on ever since the bow and arrow was invented and the first warriors started terrorizing the village. And I'm, I'm, I'm amazed Marx didn't see it. I, you know, he actually wasn't a trained economist, in fact. But I, I was at the University of Cambridge Economics uh, faculty the other day looking and saying to the staff there, like, who? Where's your section on, on the economics of war and peace? And they looked at me blankly, mm -hmm. like, what? You know? So if we're going to get peace on this planet, my, my vision is that we have to, first of all, understand why we don't have it. And it's to do with the, the capitalist interest in militarism. Yeah, Vast expenditure goes into militarism. And they've now got to the point of engineering through fake information using manipulation of military intelligence very skillfully yeah. to then create enemies you know um and and then we all go chasing off and invade iraq or whatever the new thing is right <laughs> um so what i'm saying is no right. let's that's take why, that's why really yeah please, please let's, let's take that back and i want to see before you know my work is done i won't succeed unless we get 95 percent of all the expenditure on militarism around the planet reduced to five percent so i want the i want the pentagon to have five percent budget of what it's got at the moment and the same in all the other nation states and that's that's plenty that's enough for a defense force for every it's country a very interesting way to convert something that's already being spent and uh accounted for in our economy right uh, yeah yeah i mean it's, it's just budget and reroute it into a people and planet budget Thank allow you. us to, to, to create a capitalism that kind of um, that works for right? us yeah that works that works for us and each other and i think yeah. i think i totally see that and um this is part of the effort that that really green planet and blue planet is standing for also the quest of how, what does it take to actually create it and instill it at a highest level is it a planetary oath is it a form of an agreement is it when declaration like what do we need to actually Partly. make it happen in real over the next five years, or 10 years. Yeah, that's, that's a question I've been really puzzling, it, you know? puzzling over. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what I've been doing in the last phase of this lockdown, in the last 10, 15 years, I've been to India quite a lot of times to Jain conferences. The Jains are like the SAS of the peace movement. They're the real hardcore guys who do absolute nonviolence. I love them. And they have this conference every few years on, on nonviolence and, and you know, how we can transform the planet. And I've been to their conferences and I've written up quite a lot of their declarations. They, they given me the task of like a four day conference, now put it into a four page document, Thomas, you know, so I've done that. So what I did recently is in honor of one of the elder Janes who was, it's his 85th birthday. I brought all these declarations together and thought I'd make a little book and send it to him. But then I thought, now I've got to add this declaration and there's that one and I've got to add that one. So it grew into the little book of peace declarations is now two volumes of 800 pages of all the peace declarations that have been made in the last couple of hundred years. And I've analyzed them. I put footnotes in and I've said, well, what are we committed to? You know, where's the founding document of UNESCO? Why isn't it delivering on global peace? It's supposed to be bringing scientists cultural figures and educators together for peace so let's look at its founding document i've looked at the founding documents of the un i've even gone back to the american um, declaration of independence because that's a kind of peace document they were really annoyed at the british sending over armies to terrorize them 
And they were saying, we have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you very much. Take your armies away. Um, and so on. So I've gone through the, um, <clears throat> you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as well. People are now talking about the right to peace as, a, as, the, as the next human right that needs to be articulated and put into a declaration. Um, so yes, so that, that, those two volumes, I'm working on the third volume, it's going to be three volumes in the end. That's to give people, scholars, students, all of us actually, the kind of where we are. That's what our forefathers and mothers have agreed so far. Some presidents, like your current guy, seem to want to tear some of these up. So he's just left UNESCO, he's torn up the peace agreement with Iran. You know, there's a, there's a revisionist mood out there of people trying to get out of past peace agreements. I don't agree with that. I think they're great. Um, they just need, we need more of them. We need, we need uh, newer versions of them, right? Like that seems to be the yes. case with governments that are really willing to, to lead transparently, to lead in, in, in a way of, I mean, role model is maybe an, an outdated word, but like in a way that actually includes the people, includes the sense making we have through the internet uh, nowadays, because the world has also rapidly changed, right? Like since a lot of the philosophical history and, and reflections on our society have taken place, the world has become, uh, yeah, exaggerated, right? Everything has been mm. like on an uh, extra rapid growth. So sure. Here we no, are we need 2020 to, set for the future. We need to keep pace with it all. I mean, let me give an example. The Paris Climate Treaty, where all the nations signed up because of global warming. Macron hosted that. And Trump's going to pull America out of that again. And that's quite interesting. I've done a lot of research on the the... Um, the kind of information underlying the international uh, panel on climate change, which was set up legally by the World Meteorological Organization, which was itself set up in 48. And it, it monitors weather all around the world. And so it set up this panel to investigate. But what I've discovered is a problem in the terms of reference that the panel was given when it was created in the 80s, because it was set up to study man-made climate change only that's that's in its you know remit so of course what it does it keeps publishing documents alarmist documents saying we're changing the climate and it's all man-made the problem is that that gives you know there's an un, there's a very difficult conversation to be had because other people say well hang on we can't be changing all the climate surely the climate was changing before carbon dioxide levels started going up. Surely there's some other causal factors involved. So what I'm proposing, and this is my role as World Intellectual Forum, you know, to rethink this stuff, we're not going to get everyone to agree with the whole climate emergency until we look at and get absolutely clear on the science of what is human agency and what is natural process. And that's not even being asked by the experts on the international climate change panel because their terms of reference don't allow them to. So I'm actually gonna be contacting the World Meteorological Organization saying, hey guys, can you rewrite this remit? And can they please look at you know, the percentage of climate change caused by human agency and the percentage caused by possibly other or unknown factors? Because that's the only really scientific way to do it. 
So yes, we, some of these treaties need rethinking and rewriting. Um, so that gives a little glimpse. Um, yeah, thank you so much for doing. this, you know, eloquent and elaborate answer around some of those topics that are most of our focus right now on the planet um, mm. in terms of how is the economy shaping forward? What, what is the responsibility and also the call to action for the people, right? Like, because we're all co-creating it together, really, actually, and mm. times are changing. And, and, and I think it's more vital Positively. than ever to ask ourselves exactly mm. as they are changing positively, like what kind of world do we want to create and how can we help each other do so? Thomas, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for being on Green Planet, Blue Planet. Is there anything else you'd like to share or add to uh, <laughs> the, the thoughts we just had? I know this is just a teaser, um, a taster of the deep sure. work you're doing. No, I mean, people can, can look at my, um, my own podcast. It's called the Global Green University, which is the thing I set up um, in Global 99. Global Green University. Global Green University, and, and there's a load of talks and stuff on there. Um, just, I want to just say one thing about the COVID thing, since that's very topical. Um, I'm trying to get uh, the UN. I've discovered in doing my Book of Peace declarations, there's a thing called the Bioweapons Convention, which nobody talks about. And that governs all biological weapons, including accidental spills and stuff. And the UN has a duty to investigate all the biological labs capable of making weapons and see what they're up to. So I'm saying as an absolute priority, the first thing we should know is, is this virus, this coronavirus pandemic, is it, is it something that's come out of a bioweapons lab by accident somewhere? We don't know where. Or is it truly a kind of natural thing? That's the very first question to ask. Yeah. And the only way we'll find out is if we have that official inspection under the UN. So I've been writing letters most recently to the Pope, bless him, because he has a, a pontifical academy of sciences, which has really, really top scientists around the world who happen to be Catholic. The president of that is a German biologist of all mm -hmm. things. Now these guys would know enough to you know, absolutely verify and understand what's really going on. Yeah, I think well, there's, that's really a very, very um, solid step forward is to bring more transparency to this entire conversation and lift it out of the, the shadows or the announcements that are maybe controlled from certain interests. Well, they've all got their own geopolitical agendas and, and we need a you know, neutral body, a transpersonal body. And the other thing, the final thing I want to say is <clears throat> I'm also campaigning for, and this has been brought forward by the tragedy of what we're suffering. I think all scientists taking a higher doctorate in any university in the world, when they graduate, should have to take the equivalent of a medical Hippocratic oath, not to misuse their knowledge to harm people, not to make weapons of mass destruction, not to invent dreadful ways of, of mass killing people. And I find it incredible that they don't have to take that oath. Because, you know, if this is a bioweapon, they're very clever people who've made it. And um, one of my tutors, um, you know, who, who was at the University of London, where I worked for many years, creating this Peace Studies Institute, um, you know, he was always warning me, look, science is a double-edged sword. If it has no ethics, it can be misused. So by taking an oath, you mentioned there's a need for a planetary oath. Yeah, let, at least get our science graduates, when they get their doctorate, to take a, like, I call it the Pythagorean Oath. Mm -hmm. not to harm nature, the environment, or fellow humans. 
Well, but almost beyond it, right? Like, I mean, now that, that you're going, going to that place, I think not just not to harm nature and each other, but what if we had a form of an oath that actually positively commits us to build in harmony and resonance and almost like biomimicry with the intelligence of the cosmos and that which is around us, right? Like we as a species need to in some form or shape understand that and commit to it as a process of how we're operating. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the common code that's inside us all. Normally, that's called what we call common sense. Most people know that intuitively. Yeah, it's, like, exactly. it's like the capacity to love. I mean, that's what love is. When you love a cat or you love your partner or you love a sunset, it's that feeling of interconnectedness. And of course, you're not going to harm it. You're going to resonate in harmony with it, which is what love is. By the way, I've also pioneered, um, I published the only academic journal in the world on the nature of love. <laughs> and and uh, it's bonkers, I know, but there's millions of journals on every other subject under the sun, academic things. I'm the only guy doing love studies, <laughs> which is absurd, you know, please spread mm -hmm. the word. Because uh, <laughs> love is- people find more of that? I'll, I'll make sure to, to link all that out in the show notes. Well, there's, there's um, I mean, my main website is educationaid.net. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll make sure- uh, And then there's links that. from that based, to all the other stuff. That's the hub, yeah. Perfect, Thomas. Thomas, thank you so yeah. much for your time, your insights, <laughs> and uh, all the the great provocative um, ways to to you know interact with with our reality in a much more holistic fashion, in a fashion or a way of believing in 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 this planet to actually thrive and go through an evolutionary change. Thank yeah, you. no, no, it's been fascinating talk, and. Uh, I wish you'd had a chance to speak as much as me, but I guess you get to say a bit every time. Other times I get. I I'm going to have to tune into all your things. From yeah, now on. yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, bless you, Jim. And that's that. Another episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. I hope you truly enjoyed this one and received some insights, knowledge, and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life into your relationships, or maybe even into your business and the way you show up for the world. Because this is a movement and we're all part of it and we're in this together. We're here to create a world of a triple bottom line where you win, I win, and the entire planet wins. We're raising consciousness together and you know that. That's why you're listening. That's why I love you. So make sure to share the love. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Invite a friend to listen to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. And if you have an idea who else you'd like me to interview, make sure you reach out and send me a suggestion. Definitely check out greenplanet-blueplanet.com, the website to the podcast. I've created a lot of different offers for you, free content, free meditations for you to amplify your connection to self, the state of social impact in the world, and for you to connect and listen to who you could support of the people that I actually interview because their missions are ongoing and a lot of them need more collaboration. And after more than 100 episodes now, with some of the world's leading social impact experts, I have synthesized my most inspired learnings and takeaways to create coaching and mentorship programs for you and the people around you. Let me share with you about planetary purpose coaching and mentorship experiences. If you're in a space in your life where you're ready to level up to amplify who you are, what's coming through you and what you're doing to give your gift to the world, then I would love to hear from you and I'd love for you to apply to one of my private mentorships or group mentorships. Last but not least, there's a few different group experiences I host both in person and online. All of them are quantum learning environments and I'm happy to tell you more.
So simply inform yourself and stay connected because whatever resonates with you, I'm here to support you and bring out more purpose into the world. And with that being said, wherever you are in the world, make sure to be you, show up all the way, be all in, connect with someone today, make them smile, have yourself a stellar day. Lots of love to you and until soon.